Welcome to Raise the Line with Osmosis.org, seeking solutions with leading experts on how to increase healthcare capacity so people can get the care they need during the COVID-19 crisis and beyond. Hi, I'm Dr. Isha Desai, and today on Raise the Line, I'm happy to be joined by Dr. John Danaher, the Global President of Clinical Solutions at Elsevier, which supports the work of researchers, clinicians, and educators around the world. It's a 140-year-old company, and they publish over 2,500 digitized journals, including The Lancet and many important reference works like Gray's Anatomy, the reference for anatomy, not the TV show. Dr. Danaher is board certified in internal medicine and has a wealth of experience in education and digital communications, having held leadership positions at Kaplan University, Discovery Communications, and WebMD. Thank you so much for being with us today. Thanks, Rishi. So I'd love to just kind of get your story, your backstory on what got you into medicine and, and what led you down these interesting career choices. You've had so much variation in, in where you've worked. Well, thank you. And I, I'm delighted to be here today and share with you and your audience. I started medical school at Dartmouth and then did my chief residency out at Stanford. And I had a very seminal event occur for me. And that was, they asked me to be the chief resident of medicine. There was a year interlude. And so what I did was I applied for a program called the White House Fellowship. And um, it was during uh, George Herbert Walker Bush, the 41st president. So I was very lucky to be uh, chosen and was part of a class of about 14 people and assigned to the Secretary of Health and Human Services. And while I was there, Rishi, and it's very apropos, given what we're dealing with with COVID, we were dealing with AIDS at that time. And really what was happening was the decisions that Dr. Sullivan was making and that I was making and had the opportunity to observe, really at the end of the day came down to how much could we afford in terms of, of therapies and treatments and research for AIDS versus breast cancer versus other diseases. And so I, I realized at that time that I was very ill-equipped to answer those questions. And I had a very naive perception that um, a social policy, if there was an outbreak of COVID or, or SARS or Ebola, that, that all the resources in the country would go, go towards solving that problem. So long story short, it, it resulted in my uh, going back to Stanford, doing my chief residency, and then attending the uh, Graduate School of Business and getting an MBA from Stanford and learning those skills of health, health economics and health outcomes research and cost benefit, cost and effectiveness. And then from there, I, I've been very blessed in my career to have been on all sides of the healthcare continuum. So I was on the provider side initially, as you said, I was on the early management team of WebMD. I also uh, was in, in, in health insurance and then some very exciting years in healthcare education and then have been at Elsevier now for the past seven and a half years. So it's given me a nice 360 of how uh, healthcare information can really um, touch not only doctors, nurses, allied healthcare professionals, but patients. So do you mind then walking me through kind of what got you from there, specifically into medical education and, and how that became a, an important interest for you? Sure. After WebMD, which was just an incredibly exciting time, I decided to start my own company. And what, what the company did, what got me so excited was when the HIPAA regulations were being passed and implemented. And... Um, and what I saw was that close to 5 million people, healthcare workers in hospitals, insurance professionals, et cetera, had to be trained by job title and by job activity on privacy and security regulations. 
And what I saw was that there was a, a tremendous drop dead date with penalties from the Office of Civil Rights, et cetera, if you weren't in compliance. And so that's when I started a company that was a uh, SaaS-based ASP offering that delivered online education primarily in the regulatory and compliance space with HIPAA. And then we got into uh, training medical professionals and sales reps on, on therapeutic and on the drugs, on therapeutic action, et cetera. The company was subsequently acquired. And as you mentioned, I, I was with Discovery for a while. And then the opportunity came up to, uh, to be at, at Kaplan. And Kaplan really had a strong commitment to healthcare education. And so I ran the healthcare on-ground and online schools for Kaplan. And there we not only launched numerous new degree programs such as DNPs, doctors of nurse practice, et cetera, but also a number of hybrid and blended models. So it's a little bit deja vu what's going on right now and the focus on LMSs, learning management systems, et cetera. Uh, but that was, it was really starting my own company, addressing the training and educational needs. I just knew there was no way with traditional methods, face-to-face -face training that you could do it and you'd really have to turn to online learning. So I've been a longtime proponent of online learning and blended education. In many ways, it feels, John, that you've arrived at this spot and that the rest of the world sort of took their sweet time, but has finally arrived as well. I'm curious, can you walk me through day to day what you do at Elsevier now and how that dovetails with all your past experiences? Sure, sure. So first of all, as, as you said, Rishi, in the, in the introduction, which was very generous, at Elsevier, we do indeed produce roughly 25% of the world's healthcare information. And as you said, it's, it's the Lancet, it's the cell, it's cell press. You know, we, we publish many society journals, Jack, the Journal of the American College of Cardiology, Gray's Anatomy, Netters, et cetera. And needless to say, Rishi, all the, the books that, that you and I both trained with and utilized, be it Goldman Cecil's or, or any of the internal medical, medical texts, it was foundational to our, to our educational background and quite frankly, to our continuing education. So just as a baseline, there is not a doctor, a nurse, an allied healthcare professional in the world that in some way somehow has not been touched by our educational material. So we operate in countries all over the world, have a very strong presence in China, everywhere. So what we're focused on now, what, what I'm very much focused on is this, we uh, traditionally have served the reference use case for again, doctors, nurses, and allied healthcare professionals. What that reference use case is, it's books, it's journals, and it's digital databases. Where we're much more focused on now is being part of the workflow. You know, obviously books and journals are long form content. And when you're part of the workflow um, and seeing patients in your point of care, it's gotta be much shorter, it's gotta be much more synoptic, it's gotta be much more actionable, et cetera. So the question and the challenge for us is, how do you distill the essence and how do you curate it so that if you're a busy pediatrician, you're a busy internist, et cetera, and you need an answer, you need help making a diagnosis or help thinking about what's the right drug to put the patient on or, or the right imaging study, et cetera, that you can have right at your fingertips evidence-based information. And so we do that the entire patient journey. And though, you know, for, for physicians like us and for healthcare students, for healthcare professionals, you know, it's everything from helping doctors and, and nurses and pharmacists make the right initial diagnosis and treatments. So we have products such as Clinical Key, then we have order sets and we have care plans. 
and then we have guidelines and we have pathways, et cetera. And these, Rishi, are all built into technology platforms, be it EHRs, you know, in the US, they're built into Epic and Cerner and Allscripts. In uh, Brazil, they're, they're built into MV and TASI. But it's not just EHRs. It's also voice recognition systems and modal, nuance, et cetera. And so the whole thing, the whole problem we're after. So with education and the reference use case, you're trying to help students, doctors, professionals, nurses, allied healthcare professionals do acquisition knowledge. You know, they're learning, they're training, et cetera. But in the workflow, what we're really trying to do, be it with our order sets or our care plans or our guidelines, is help standardize the delivery of care reduce the unintended variability and improve patient outcomes. So that's what I work on and, and our focus again is medical software. We really are seeking to make the EMRs, the systems of, of record, you know, I bought a Dell computer, but it's actually the software, the Microsoft operating system that you engage with. So we're seeking to be the system of engagement while the EMRs are the system of record. That makes perfect sense. And, and I like the way you phrase that because uh, I think people often don't necessarily understand exactly what you're interacting with. And so it sounds like you'd like them to interact with Elsevier wherever that happens to be. Um, Correct. And, you know, kind of in, in any medium. There's also another point you brought up, which is around just-in-time learning, that we more and more need that one little snippet of information. And right at that moment, you needed that. I'm curious because you've you've done this once in your career already where you were already kind of where the soccer ball was headed before, as I said, many of us got there. Where do you see digital education, especially in healthcare, going? Uh, and how is Elsevier kind of positioning itself to get there ahead of the soccer ball? Yeah, it's a great question, Rishi. It's a great question. And there's a few touch points that I think present great opportunities for us. One opportunity that we are actively pursuing is the experience of every single chief nursing officer in the US, and but this is also globally, is that new nursing graduates, they're theoretically trained, but they're missing a lot of the experiential knowledge that they need. So even if they're, they come out of the premier Ivy nursing school, University of Pennsylvania, or they come from University of Washington, et cetera, anywhere, or they come from for-profit schools, the, the Chamberlains, the Kaplans, et cetera, there's a tremendous need for onboarding and there is a tremendous need to give them those skills that they need to be contributory. We've developed a, a product called Transition to Practice to address just this need. There's such a shortage, be it for doctors, you know, medical students and nursing students, of clinical space for opportunities to do rotations to be able to get the experience as a student that you need. So my assumption would be, oh, it was going to be a lot of clinical skills that these new graduates, these nurses onboarding were going to need. But what they also need are these non-cognitive skills and being able to, for example, convey the loss of a loved one to a patient's family. That's, that's not really a skill that you get much. You know, you may observe it with a nurse doing it on the wards, but really the skill of how to do that or how to manage a diverse workforce. There's just a whole slew of what we refer to as non-cognitive skills that the nursing schools, in all frankness, you know, they're, they're much, very much focused on passing the NCLEX and, and trying to give, you know, get the, get the nurses right. So, so that's one area, that whole transition to practice, that whole onboarding, it's usually a process of about six months and it costs hospitals everywhere $65,000 
to get a nurse up to speed, to get so that they can really be job ready. And one of the great things, Rishi, as you know, you know, as physicians, we we have internships, we have residents, et cetera. With nursing, you, you go right to work. So we see that as a tremendous opportunity. Uh, a second real opportunity, Rishi, is, is as you know, we were as I was mentioning earlier, you know, clearly clinical hours and really getting into these hospitals and really getting hands-on experience, et cetera, is, is in short supply. And it's one of the things when nursing programs look to expand, they've got to demonstrate to their state board of nursing that they've got enough clinical sites, clinical rotations lined up for them to be able to give their students an adequate educational experience. That's a real, that's a real issue. It's a real issue in nursing education. And also, you know, in, in, in medicine, it's also a, a very real issue for physicians making sure that they have those skills. So we're very, very interested in the area of simulation and the work that's going on in simulation. And you're gonna be hearing more from us about this, but, but everything in terms of virtual reality and augmented reality are all areas that we're very excited about and how they can supplement nursing education, medical education, et cetera. So I'll stop there, but those are just two areas where I think technology and addressing some of those touch points for additional training and then last thing, I think you, you know, being a clinician, what we all realize is how we practice and how nurses do things, how physicians do things is often based on what we learned 20 years ago, 25 years ago, 15 years ago, et cetera. So being able to do more real-time assessment of nurses and doctors' competencies and skills, and we may be very confident, yes, we know how to do this, we're, we're right on top of things, but when you're actually assessed, you, you may not be, you may not be doing it correct. You may not be doing, you know, what the latest literature or evidence says is the right way of treating things. So, so I think real-time assessments and being able to do real-time remediation is, is also a, a tremendous interest and focus for Elsevier and for us. So if I'm hearing you right, you, you mentioned that some areas of focus are interpersonal skills, maybe soft skills is a, is a phrase I, I often hear, although the word soft is probably not the, the best one. You've also mentioned simulation training, both low fidelity, high fidelity, and then you talked about real-time assessments. I'm curious, with those three priorities in mind, how has COVID-19, I would assume, maybe accelerated some of those priorities, but, but specifically within domains? Like, are you seeing more interest among certain groups like nurses for simulated trainings or among, let's say, allied health professionals for real-time assessments? Are you seeing any certain trends that, that would be of interest? Yeah. I mean, I, I think, uh, Rishi, both geographically and profession-wise, so, so as a general statement, if you look at the portfolio of businesses that I have responsibility for, the portfolio of businesses that rely upon learning management system platform delivery, and so these are things such as e-learning skills, simulation skills, you know, videos of skills, et cetera. So that whole line of business it's outperforming compared to our forecasts and our projections for the year. So just as a general rule, that whole sector is, is doing quite a lot. There have been some uh, tremendous, wonderful surprises. So for example, I'll just mention in Korea, we've had a strong, strong interest in skills training. In Japan, we've had a tremendous amount of interest. We, we offer a, a product there called Safety Plus to help with a lot of the, the training and education that has to go on in hospitals. In the absence of being able to do things face-to-face -face, and the need for a lot of this mission-critical training to occur, 
it's really causing all learning development to rise quite a bit and to perform very strongly. That's phenomenally interesting. I mean, especially the international piece, I would have never thought of that. So I'm curious to learn maybe why that would be the case in those geographies. You know, broadly, COVID is affecting the entire world and and has exposed a lot of fractures in our healthcare system. What do you think are the top few things we need to do to strengthen our healthcare system more broadly? You know, I think what COVID did, Rishi, is it really unmasked some of the structural defects in our healthcare system. You know, I know for one, you have a personal interest in telemedicine and telehealth. And obviously, you know, just like learning development, learning management systems and online learning, that's another area that, you know, I think people like the two of us had, had been looking at it for years and saying, well, you know, why don't we do more of this? You know, why, why, why don't people use and leverage this modality for the elderly, for people who, who don't have easy access to transportation? Why don't we do more telehealth? So clearly what COVID has done is, is really caused that whole industry, that modality to significantly increase. So I think there it's been an example of a wonderful accelerant. It was a wonderful time for Elsevier to live its mission. And again, what is, you know, my business's mission is improving every patient outcome. What do we do? We deliver relevant, informative, accurate, highly curated medical, nursing, allied healthcare content at the point of need. Let's just talk about the, the morass of misinformation. There's a need for an authoritative, clear, definitive voice in this morass of, of healthcare information. And everybody's got an opinion about what therapies work, you know, when vaccines are gonna come. So, so again, I think the first thing that it's unmasked is really the role for authoritative, informative, accurate, peer-reviewed information. Again, which, is, which bespeaks what we do. So that's number one. The second thing is that, you know, Rishi, there was tremendous amounts of research that needed to be done about the right ways of doing things, the right way of treating this disease. I mean, just even a very obvious example, and we've gotten wonderful testimonials from all over the world. We launched three free COVID resource sites, making our information and our tools, be they COVID order sets, care plans, et cetera, be they Lancet articles, uh, be they our research tools free. So what it also unmasked, quite frankly, was just a need to, to fill in the knowledge and the knowledge gap about how best to treat this disease and how to manage it. So that's the second thing. And then specifically, you know, we developed a whole bunch of tools, as I was saying earlier, that were specific for COVID in terms of order sets, in terms of care plans, because people really didn't know what to do or how to do it. And we rose to the challenge, the organization rose to the challenge, my business unit in particular, I'm so proud of, and we, we got all this information out there. We created healthcare hubs. We created research hubs. We made it for free. And Rishi, again, this is the part that, that I don't want to sound too self-congratulatory, but we would get letters of appreciation from nurses and from doctors. I have them from the Canary Islands. I have them from Baghdad. I have them from India. I have them from, from all over the world, you know, doctors and nurses saying how our information made such a difference in, in, the, in the lives of the patients that they were caring for. So long story short is I think what COVID exposed was, was a need for clarity in, in this morass of disinformation and where, where's your true north? 
Secondly, there was a delta between uh, our knowledge base and what we needed to know about how best to treat this disease. And the third thing was there are actually specific tools and offerings, and, you know, and even the telemedicine platform, so that we could best meet the needs of doctors and nurses and the frontline workers caring for this disease. So John, with, with that in mind, I guess maybe my final question will be, what advice do you have for incoming healthcare workers joining the workforce now in the midst of COVID-19? I think, Rishi, it's a couple of things. First and foremost, and I think as, as you feel, as I feel, there is no more noble profession than to be a healthcare provider. None. And so whether you're a doctor, a nurse, physical therapist, occupational therapist, a nutritionist, you should realize that you are entering an extremely noble profession that has a tremendous amount of demand and respect by people, and particularly in, the, in terms of this time of COVID. So that's the first thing that I would say. And second thing, Rishi, which I think you know, you'll appreciate is you've got to take care of your mental health and be aware of and sensitive to your mental health if you are a frontline worker addressing this pandemic. It is horrendously stressful and there's associated depression and post-traumatic stress disorders, et cetera, a full gamut, a full array of, of mental health illnesses that we're seeing in many frontline healthcare workers as they battle this pandemic. This pandemic is, is far from over. And so again, I, I would just, the new graduates entering this field for the first time, new healthcare workers, new clinicians, I would really just congratulate them for having chosen a noble, noble profession and career and just encourage them to listen and to stay closely tuned into um, to their mental health needs, because this is a very taxing, trying time for everyone. Well, I think on that note, uh, I'll, I'll say thank you for saying that. I, I definitely concur. And I want to thank you, Dr. Danaher, for taking the time to be with us today. I'm Rishi Asai. Thanks for checking out today's show. Remember to do your part to flatten the curve and raise the line. We're all in this together. For more information on how you can help raise the line and flatten the curve, go to osmosis.org slash COVID-19. If you like this podcast, please share it on your social channels. You can also subscribe to the series and check out all of our podcasts at osmosis.org slash raise the line podcast. <laughs>